I'd like to draw your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Lord, it's so comforting to be reminded of these words, to have our hearts drawn back to these blessed truths of the gospel. And I pray that that's what you do, that you would invigorate our hearts and our minds, but that you would take us also deeper, that we would treasure these truths even more as we consider the basics of the gospel, that we would leave here worshiping you more, even more transformed, more committed to living according to the great calling with which you've called us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. It was July of 1961, and 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together for the first day of training camp. And the previous season had ended with the Packers squandering a late lead to the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL championship. And the Green Bay Packers, the players, had been thinking about that loss the whole offseason. And now training camp had arrived and it was time to get back to work. And the players were eager to advance their game, to work on the little tactics that would bring them to the next level and working on the details that would help them win a championship. But their coach, Vince Lombardi, had a different idea. As they all gathered around in the locker room, Lombardi held up a football. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. And from there, he began with the basics. And his methodical coverage of the basics continued throughout training camp. Each player reviewed how to block and how to tackle. They opened the playbook and they began at page one and slowly worked their way through it. And six months later, the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37 to nothing in the NFL championship. Well, these verses in Paul, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 
or his endeavor to go back to the basics. In particular, the basics of the gospel. And even more particularly, the resurrection. Really, this whole chapter, chapter 15, is all about the resurrection. It could actually be a chapter in and of itself. In that, if we just studied this, we, it's helpful to see it in its whole context of the book, as you'll recognize some themes. But really, it's sufficient in and of itself to study. But why does he spend 58 verses simply talking about the nature of the resurrection? I believe it's the longest chapter in the book. 58 verses all on the resurrection. I mean, why was it so critical for Paul for him to get that detailed about a doctrine that, frankly, we don't think a whole lot about? Well, it's all in response to some false teaching that had crept into the church regarding the resurrection. If you look at verse 12, there were some teachers that were actually saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Probably that there would they, they inferred there would be a spiritual resurrection, but no physical resurrection. Our spirits would go into heaven, probably a Neoplatonic philosophy of some sort, but no physical resurrection. But to Paul, such a false teaching is an anathema. Because the doctrine of the resurrection is no small peripheral doctrine. Notice how he unpacks this. Verse 14, he says, If there is no resurrection from the dead, if we will not physically rise from the dead, then all our faith is in vain. It's empty. Verse 14. In verse 15, he says, The apostles are also misrepresenting God. Verse 17, if there's no resurrection of believers, there's no resurrection of Christ. And if there's no resurrection of Christ, there is no salvation. You are still in your sins. Verse 19, and if there's no resurrection, believers are most to be pitied. And what we can derive from this is that the way we live now is a direct reflection of what we truly believe. And we'll see this more as we get into chapter 15. And so it's not a stretch to say that the root of the Corinthians' worldliness, the worldliness that we've seen the 14 chapters previous, the root of that was a misunderstanding of the resurrection. Or at least shakiness in regard to it. The evidence that we have been born again is that we live for eternal things. We live in light of the fact that one day we will die and then we'll rise again. And what, care, what we care most about is what happens after we die. Not now. The way we live now shows what we believe. Just like for the Corinthians. The way they lived then showed what they actually believed regarding the resurrection. There's a connection. Because if you know that you will rise from the dead, you will not be afraid to lose any pleasure, all pleasure, that this broken life has to offer. If you know you will rise from the dead. Because it's broken. And you know what's coming can't be compared to anything that we now experience. And if you believe that, it affects everything about your life. And so the Corinthian shakiness on the doctrine of the resurrection, not to mention all the problems that emerged in the church, is what 
prompts Paul to make sure they have, in fact, received the gospel. So he turns to the basics, reminding them again of what he first taught them. And that brings us to the outline of these first 11 verses. In verses 1 and 2, he gives us a reminder of the gospel. In 3 and 4, he presents the substance of the gospel. And then in 5 through 8, various evidences or proofs of the gospel. And finally, he gives a testimony of his own life and the power of the gospel. Let's look first at a reminder of the gospel, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. The word remind comes from the word to know. It means to uh, impart knowledge, to pass knowledge along, or to make something known. So he's, again, making this, these truths known to them, reminding them. In the first, these first two verses, Paul reminds them of three things in regard to the gospel. That they received it, and its power to preserve and its power to prevail. That's the, that's, verses 1 and 2 is really about three things. That they've received the gospel, its power to preserve them, and its power to prepare them for eternity. Let's look first of all at the fact that they received the gospel. The word received can be translated to receive or to, to welcome, to accept, to have someone as a guest. So just think about it. If, if your friends came to visit you and you talked with them and they were planning on staying the night maybe and after a short conversation and you shut the door, you wouldn't be said to have received them. Just the opposite. You would be shutting them out. And in football, a pass is not received. We don't consider it a reception unless the receiver holds on to the ball. And likewise, the gospel must be received in order for it to have its transformational effect. It can't just merely be heard. It can't just merely be acknowledged. It has to be embraced, received. And know how this word is used by John in the first chapter of his gospel. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What Paul is saying, or sorry, what John is saying, is that if, they, if people received Christ, welcomed, embraced him, they had eternal life. But if they didn't receive him, it showed that they were still in their sins. This tells us that believing is receiving. One must receive the gospel, not simply acknowledge it to be factually true. I think maybe the best picture that we have of this is the picture given by Jesus in Matthew thirteen forty four. We should receive the gospel as a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man, man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. That's receiving the gospel. Seeing it as a treasure, and enjoy being willing to let go of all you have 
in order to possess it. That's receiving it. Not just acknowledging, hey, it's a treasure, and then going on your way. To receive the gospel means you recognize its value. and You would gladly give all you have to possess it. And so one's life, once they've received the gospel, revolves around the gospel. It defines their life. It directs their life. It becomes the guide for everything that they do. And what keeps us following the gospel is what Paul describes next. After we receive the gospel, he says the gospel holds us fast. It preserves us. Romans 5.2. We'll get there in a second. It preserves us. It holds us fast. In which we stand is the word that Paul uses here. It means to firmly continue in a particular state. When we receive the gospel, we are catapulted into a realm of power that holds us fast. You can think of it like like gravity holds us fast to the earth. You know, we can try and jump, and maybe we'll be in the air for a short amount of time, but we always come down. It holds us fast. The gospel has more power than gravity to keep us standing in Christ. It holds us to Christ. Once it's received, we are secured. We're grounded in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. And Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans 5 too. But instead of using the word gospel here, he uses the word grace. He says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So this grace causes us to stand. So it's this mighty sphere and influence and dominion that transforms us, empowers us, and preserves us. So God's grace is God's power no longer against us but now completely for us, holding us together, preserving us. So you can think of the gospel as a light switch that gets flicked on. And and grace is the electricity that surges through us and brings forth light. So when Paul says, in which you stand, Paul is saying that Once the light of the gospel gets turned on, it never goes out. It keeps going and going. So the Energizer Bunny's got nothing on the Holy Spirit. Nothing on the gospel. It keeps going and going and going throughout all eternity. It preserves us. But the gospel of our salvation is also a work in progress. It prepares us for eternity. Paul says, by which you are being saved. It's a present, pa- uh, present passive indicative verb. And what should stand out there is that Paul chooses to describe salvation in the present tense. We tend to think of salvation happening in the past. But he says it's why you're being saved. And I believe the reason he does so is because of the context. He's talking about the resurrection. Paul knows that our salvation is not finished actually. Even though there's nothing more that is necessary in order to secure our salvation. As Christ said, it is finished. 
when he was crucified. It's finished. And yet, there's still an ongoing process. So there's a very real sense that we have been saved, yet this process won't be completed until we get our resurrected bodies. So in a sense, we're in process. So the gospel continues its work by holding us fast, securing our faith in the midst of tribulation, and preparing us for glory. But notice then that Paul inserts this contingency. You've received the gospel. It's preserving you. It's preparing you if... If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The word vain, just it means empty. It's, it's a shadow. There's, there's nothing to it. There's no substance. There is such a thing then as empty faith, hollow faith, fake belief. There's many people that think they believe in Christ, but that belief is shallow. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he just lists these things. And Christ will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is such a thing as empty faith. And this also shows that the reason Paul brings up all this information regarding the resurrection is not simply to give a doctrinal treatise. I mean, if you listen to what he's saying, he's not... He's a far more impassioned, I'd say, than even what, you, what we read in something like the book of Romans. That is more of, I'd say, a doctrinal treatise, very logical and laid out and very concise. Paul, again, like the rest of the Corinthians, he's trying to get to the Corinthians' heart. For Paul, this is a heart problem. It's not simply a knowledge problem. Paul recognizes that there may be some people whose faith is empty or vain. He's worried that there might be some Corinthians, because of what he sees and what he's heard in their congregation, what's going on. He's worried there might be some Corinthians that actually think they're saved and that aren't. Especially because they're shaky in regard to the resurrection. Now imagine that you're on a ship in the midst of a storm. And that ship is sinking. And the captain informs everyone on the ship that it needs to be abandoned. And he tells you that the Coast Guard has been notified, but they have no idea how long it's going to take them to arrive. The captain begins to pass out life preservers and telling everyone that if they hold on to the life preserver, it will preserve them from drowning. But to your astonishment, you recognize that some people who had been given a life preserver choose to let go of it, and instead are choosing simply to tread water on their own. And when you ask them why, they explain that they won't trust their life to the captain because, look at the ship. The ship's wrecked. The ship is sinking. If he was any captain that I could trust, then the ship shouldn't be sinking at all. And so instead, they're going to try to stay afloat through their own strength. Their trust, therefore, in that life preserver was empty. That's why they let go of it. The evidence that we are saved is that we hold fast to the gospel, especially in the midst of trials. Not our own efforts. Or to put it another way, the evidence that we have received the gospel 
is that we continue to be preserved and we continue to be prepared for eternity. Because that is the effect of grace on a person's life. Grace transforms the way a person lives, the way a person thinks. They're not the same anymore. Paul will give testimony of this in his own life in a few verses. But just consider what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So it's through the trials. Trials test our faith. They prove what we really believe. They prove where our hope is. Is it in the fleeting glories of this life, the things that men praise and think is valuable and worth living for? Or is it living for Christ? Trials reveal that. And when we endure, we hold fast to the gospel in the midst of those trials, it shows that we're real. Our faith is not vain. So trials are a gift. The evidence that we've received the gospel, that our faith is not vain, is that we continue to hold fast to it by walking in a manner worthy of it. So that's a reminder of the gospel. In the next couple of verses, Paul gives a summary of the substance of the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, in these verses, Paul gives two validations of the gospel and then two points that summarize the gospel. Let's look first at these validations. That is, evidences that the gospel is true. It's valid. First of all, what Paul taught them is what he also received. This tells us that Paul did not make this up. He was given this information by Christ himself. And this is actually more fully explained in the book of Galatians, chapter 2. He says there, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That is, men didn't make this up. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that he received the gospel that he shares amongst the nations about the resurrection that's coming because Christ rose from the dead. He heard that from Christ himself who was dead, and then appeared to him bodily and shared with them this information. All that Paul taught, he received from Christ. And this also completely corresponds to what the rest of the Scriptures said would take place. So the second validation is that it's in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel he teach, he received from Christ, a resurrected Christ, and it's in accordance with the Scriptures. And if you've read the Gospels, you'll be aware that time and time again, the phrase, 
in order to fulfill the scriptures or in accordance with the scriptures comes about because the gospel writers primary aim was to show that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. He was the son of God. And that's what Christ did. All of his life was geared to demonstrate he was the promised one. And this is particularly made evident in his conversation with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. In Luke 24, it says this. Christ says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So the whole Testament was directing towards this moment. Towards him, to prove it was him. Christ fulfilled everything in accordance with the scriptures. And what Paul teaches is in direct accordance with the scriptures as well. So then he summarizes the substance of the gospel in two points. There's many ways to summarize the gospel. This is how Paul summarizes it. Christ died for our sins, and then he was buried and was raised. He died for our sins, and then he was buried and raised. Christ died for our sins. And what this tells us is that Christ did not simply die. It's important to note because all men die. As I said, it was at Willamette National Cemetery today. Every person there that's buried in the ground died. But the difference between Christ and those men and women in the ground is that all of them and us too one day deserve to die. Those soldiers who lay down their life for our country deserve to die because they sinned. The wages of sin is death. If you've sinned, you deserve death. Christ died, but he had no sin. He was sinless. He died for another reason. Jesus, the eternal God, became man and died for your sins. In other words, it was your fault he was hung upon the tree. It was my fault he was crucified. He bore our fault so that we wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God for all eternity. Christ died for our sins. I love how Isaiah 53 describes Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Christ did not simply provide us with a good example of how to live. He died because if he didn't die, you would have no hope. 
Your death would be the end. And then wrath. But notice that merely dying was not sufficient for what Christ desired to accomplish. And this brings Paul to his second point of the gospel. Christ was buried and then raised. The word buried refers to what you do to a dead person. Christ was dead. He was buried in the ground. But then he rose from the dead. Why is it again that Paul makes such a big deal over the resurrection? Why does that? Why should that matter to us? Why should it matter to the Corinthians that Christ died and was raised? The answer to that is that in rising, rising from the dead, Jesus Christ broke the power of sin and death over our lives. Meaning that because he raised from the dead, we too can rise from the dead if we have our faith in him. We too can rise from the dead physically. If you're in Christ, one day you will be given a resurrected body and you will walk physically upon the earth just as he did when he rose from the dead. He he is the evidence of what will soon happen to us. And therefore for us, death is merely sleep. It's just sleep. When you go to bed at night, you lay your head down. You're not terrified of what's going to happen. Because you know you're going to rise again the next morning. And likewise, that's the truth that Christians hold on to when they face death. It's just sleep. And you'll notice that's the term Paul uses for death and even in this chapter. Therefore, making it, he made it possible that even though we too will die, we will rise again if we truly receive the gospel. Paul then gives us evidences of the gospel, the proof of the gospel. He says that he, Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul lists six appearances of Christ after he rose from the dead. Now, now the Gospels, in total, the Bible gives us ten appearances. Paul just gives us six, and that's fine. Let's look at each of them. Evidences that this was not a ghost. He physically was raised. He appeared to Cephas. And this is confirmed by the account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They said that he appeared to Simon there. And then Jesus appeared to the twelve. That happened right after the the disciples got back from their trip on the Emmaus road. Then he appeared to five hundred at one time. And he says, most of these people are still alive. If you doubt them, you can go talk to them and they can tell you, yes, it's a real physical body. It's not a ghost. It's not a hologram. You could, you could put your fingers in the scars in his hand and, it, and you could feel the blood, the, the blood, the muscle and the tendons. It's physical. He's real. It's not an illusion. This was probably 
The reference to falling asleep is probably, again, a reference to their death. And he uses the word sleep to emphasize that, again, for Christians, it is not death to die. It's just sleep. Just sleep. Our hope isn't in this life. We can die. Because we know it's going to be better when we rise. He then appeared to James. Now, we have no account of this appearance in the gospel or in Acts. Paul's the one that brings it up to us. But what's noteworthy is that James was the Lord's brother. And if you remember from our study of the Gospel of John, James rejected Christ the Messiah. In fact, he mocked him, as along with the rest of his brothers. So imagine what this would have been like for James. To know that his brother was recently hung on a cross as a criminal. And he probably was thinking at that time, well, that fanatic finally got it. Finally got what was coming to him. And then days later... He's standing face to face with his dead brother. And his dead brother tells him, James, I am the Messiah. This is the evidence. And from that time onward, James became the leader of the disciples. And in fact, what's even more remarkable is James, the Lord's brother, was the first to die for his faith. He was the first of the apostles to be killed. An unlikely thing. An unlikely thing if he hadn't actually seen the risen Christ. Then Paul says he appeared to all the apostles. And this is probably referring to his ascension off Mount Olivet when he went to be with the Father. And then finally, finally Paul concludes with himself. If you want to see what... The fullness of the story, Acts 9 and 20, chapter 22, get, Paul gives a full account of when he came to see the risen Christ himself. But Paul's point is that there is indisputable evidence that Christ rose from the dead bodily. And last year, we had the privilege of um, having Chris walk through a very thorough examination of um, the evidence of Christ's resurrection according to principles of jurisprudence. And if you attended that class and you took really good notes, you might be able to provide such evidence of Christ's bodily resurrection to a skeptic. But what if you didn't? What if you didn't attend the class or what if you didn't take good notes? How can you prove the reality of the resurrection to an unbeliever? Well, I would encourage you to do what Paul does next. Point to the evidence of the resurrection in your own life. The power of the gospel. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. Paul is proving the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel in his own life. In verse 8, he actually describes himself as one who is untimely born. That is not a flattering term. It's the same term that's used to describe a miscarriage or an abortion. 
or a stillbirth. What Paul is doing is he's depicting himself as the runt of the litter. Because he recognizes he does not deserve to be called a servant of Christ, let alone an apostle. Because he was a persecutor of Christians. But recognize this is what he wants, this is the point he wants to make. He went from being a persecutor of Christians, doing his best to wipe out Christianity in Judea, to the extent that he was the one that oversaw the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Paul went from being a persecutor of Christians to, be, to working harder than any of the apostles to spread the news of the resurrection throughout the world. He was radically changed by grace. That's why he says, His grace towards me was not in vain. It, I did not have empty faith. His grace transformed me. I was a new man after I received the gospel. But again, it's not, not I, but the grace of God in me. The gr- grace changed me. Power works in my life. So what he's saying is, the gospel is not just something to be believed. It transforms a person to love it and to live for it. He was radically changed by grace. Grace is power. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that transforms an unbeliever into a believer and keeps them that way. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, if there is, there's got to be evidence of that in your life. Or your faith is vain. Paul's life is some of the best evidence of the power of the gospel to transform. And likewise, our lives should be the best evidence that there is a resurrection. We believe it. And it's evidenced with our life. Brothers and sisters, if your friends or family members are not presently holding fast to God's word, seeking to trust and obey it, they will perish in their sins unless they repent. It is not sufficient for just you to believe. Your faith does not save your family members. It will not save your friends. It doesn't work that way. They too must receive the gospel. You cannot receive it on behalf of them. They must receive it. They need to believe. So this is the heartbreaking question. How do I make them believe? What can I do? Well, I think the answer is, again, by demonstrating the reality of this transformation in your own life. By demonstrating supernatural fruit of the Spirit, inexplicable love, joy that passes understanding. 
But it's also imperative that you preach to them, that you tell them the good news. But again, not just preach to them, but live out the reality of what you're preaching to them in front of them by holding fast to it. William Carey, one of my heroes, is considered the father of modern missions. Because prior to his mission endeavor to India, the prevailing doctrine in Great Britain was what we would call hyper-Calvinism. And what hyper-Calvinism teaches is that it's a belief that since God is sovereign over people's salvation, that it's all His work, He's the one that transformed, that therefore we have no responsibility. And so when people brought up the subject of missions, what they were told was, well, if you really believe in the power and sovereignty of God, you don't need to go over there. Just pray for them. If you really believe it's God who transforms hearts, show your faith by sitting still and just praying. He will save them with or without us, is what this believes. Well, there's a tinge of hyper-Calvinism, I think, in Christianity in America today. We hold fast to the truth, and it is true that only God can change a person's heart. Where we go wrong, I think, or we often go wrong, is that we believe, therefore, that it's not our responsibility. And we end up placating our irresponsibility and faithlessness. And that's not to set the doctrines of grace aside. But there is a very real sense that the salvation of unbelievers around you is dependent upon your faithfulness to preach and live the gospel out in your life. You're the one whom God has put into their lives. Consider what Paul said to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. It was the eternal welfare of the lost that compelled Paul to endure all that he endured. Notice Paul completely believed in the sovereignty of God to transform hearts. But did he just sit on his hands? Did he just simply pray? Remember his life. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We've already read in 1 Corinthians, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Brothers and sisters, is that what your life looks like? Do you realize you're the best evidence of the reality of the gospel that unbelievers may ever have? Which means you need to both preach and then live out that preaching in your life. Or else they may never come to faith. Well, how do we guard ourselves from the two extremes then of bearing unreasonable guilt? Because it is God's power that transforms a heart, not ours. How do we guard ourselves from bearing unreasonable guilt and, on the other hand, being irresponsible, faithless 
empty Christians? I think the answer is obedience. Do everything you can. Consider Paul's example. I do everything. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I become all things to all men. If you want to have confidence that you do it, that, that, you're, that you fulfilled your responsibility, be as obedient as you possibly can be and preach as clearly as you possibly can. Do everything you can while at the same time trusting that God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. As he says, and we'll close with this passage, Philippians 2, 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, what does this look like? Do all things without grumbling and disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice the evangelistic element there. Paul's saying, don't grumble and complain because you live amidst a bunch of unbelievers and you're the light. If you are disobedient, your life, your light stinks. If there is light. You must be obedient. Not so that you can be saved. You are saved. You're obedient so that they could be saved. Well, why would you care about them getting saved? Because if they don't receive the gospel, they will be under the wrath of God for all eternity. Obedience is not about our salvation. It's their salvation. This is no light thing, brothers and sisters. And it's not legalism. We must obey the gospel. We must do everything we can for them. Believing that it's God who is working in us. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Because we shine as lights in this world. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Or labor in vain. Because if they let go of the gospel. If they give their lives over to disobedience. They've received the gospel in vain. It's empty. Disobedience. Is empty faith. That's why Paul gives 1 Corinthians 15. It's not just to fill their heads full of doctrine. It's because he is brokenhearted that there may be some that really don't believe. And brothers and sisters, your mind should be going to people in your life right now that may not believe. They may think they believe. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But what are you doing? What are you doing to prove the reality that you believe the resurrection is taking place? That your hope is not in this life. It's not in the glory that comes from man. It's not in praise. It's not in wealth. It's not in comfort. It's not in security. It's in that, hey, you're going to die, and one day you're going to be with your Lord. That's the greatest evidence of the gospel you can present. And maybe there's some of you this day, 
even as you're thinking there, you've never experienced the power of grace in your life. It's always just been an idea. You agreed with what your parents taught you. Or maybe it was just, you know, Christians seem like nice people. I want to go to church and be a nice person myself. But you never experience transformation. You've never experienced power. You never received the gospel. And if that's you, what I'd encourage you to do is ask for it. Acknowledge you need God to change your heart. And that you believe the only way that you will be able to survive death is because Jesus took the penalty you deserved on your behalf on the cross. Trust in Him. And then commit to live your life holding fast to His Word so that all around you might hear and believe through your testimony the reality of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we do not want to be lukewarm empty, vain believers. But God, we acknowledge so much of our life is not lived in light of the resurrection. Whether it's because we've never thought much about it or we're just distracted or we've received poor teaching. But Lord, we no longer want to live empty lives. We don't want to be a church full of emptiness, but full of power. We want to be lights in the world. In particular, God, we we think of our family and friends who don't know you. We ask that you would so transform our thinking, so transform our living that we would bear evidence of your grace in our life. That they too might ask a reason for the hope that is within us. And that they too might also come to salvation so that they too would rise with us when you call us home to be with you in glory. We set our hope firmly upon that day. And we thank you for purchasing it for us. For there's nothing that we could do to purchase it on our behalf. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.